This is the Education Gap Fly Show. Well, that's because you're heartless, David, and David doesn't want to try to fix these failing schools. That's sort of the unavoidable conclusion. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gap Fly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Stefan Labertu and Long Tran. Long and Stefan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, Long and Stefan are both professors at the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at the Ohio State <laughs> University. I'm going to try to keep my Michigan comments to myself other than <clears throat> go blue. But most importantly, uh, where, where we all can agree and get along is that they are the authors of a fantastic new study uh, being published by the Thomas B. Fordham Institute looking at so-called for-profit charter schools. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, let's welcome my co-host, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. First of all, welcome. And, and I do need to ask you, are, are you prepared for Ohio State to lose two years in a row to Michigan? Is that something uh, you're, you're No, I'm ready? not. Thankfully, it <laughs> won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to admit you're probably right on that. But it was so sweet. Uh, it was long overdue last year. Well, let's talk about this important uh, new study and the broader issue around for-profit charter schools in Ed Reform Update. Okay, so like I said, new study out from Fordham. It is called For-Profit Charter Schools, an Evaluation of Their Spending and Outcomes. And on this one, we decided to go very straightforward on the title. That actually is a good description of what this study looks like and is all about, the spending and the achievement of for-profit charter schools in the state of Ohio. Now, the first thing we should clear up is that there really is no such thing as a for-profit charter school, right? In Ohio and basically everywhere, except in a very quirky situation in Arizona, charter schools are nonprofit organizations, right? But some of them, about half in Ohio, do contract with for-profit management companies. And so those are the schools that we're looking at here today. There's been a lot of interest in for-profits, in part because Joe Biden on the campaign trail said that he was going to shut off federal funding to for-profit charter schools. And he has followed through with that campaign promise as president through rules for the federal charter schools program that came out in the spring. There was a lot of pushback on some of those other parts of that rule. The for-profit piece, though, pretty much sailed through and is now in place. It basically makes it very, very hard for schools with for-profit management to get a federal startup grant from the federal government. But of course, the announcements on those grants for this year will be coming out soon. So we'll see With that background, let's start with the achievement question. You all have looked at this before in Ohio, but remind us, what do we see? Are for-profit charter schools as low-performing as their critics make them out to be? No, they aren't. And that's uh, something that's pretty remarkable. And I know it surprised long uh, when we did the study, but we used some very rigorous methods, some tried and true methods to compare the achievement of students who are in all types of charter schools to the achievement of students who are in traditional public schools. And across the board, on average, both for-profit and nonprofit charter schools outperform neighborhood traditional public schools. Let's just get specific. We're talking about how much progress kids are making over the course of the school year or from year to year. Tell us a little bit more about the achievement data that you were able to look into in Ohio. Well, we were able to track achievement from 2016 to 2019. And we do so in elementary and secondary schools. So we have annual tests in math and reading, grades three through eight. And then we have end of course exams in high school. 
English one, English two, algebra, geometry, and then we have ACT, SAT scores. And so along that entire distribution, more or less consistent results. So again, this is going to surprise a lot of people who maybe think that these for-profit schools are terrible. Turns out they outperform district schools when you're doing all the sophisticated analyses. One of the newest parts of this analysis that's really never happened before is that you have some great data looking at spending patterns within charter schools. And so you are able to describe different types of for-profit charter schools and how they spend their money and how that may or may not relate to their outcomes. So let's dig into all of that. Maybe I should step back for a second. Ohio is a really remarkable opportunity to study this. Um, We have lots of charter schools that are operated by uh, nonprofit organizations, management companies that these nonprofit charter schools contract with. And we have lots of nonprofit charter schools that contract with for-profit organizations to help run their schools. And we have them all over the state, uh, which means we have lots of districts where we have these two different types of schools operating right next to one another. They have similar labor markets that they're dealing with, like the teachers they're hiring cost a similar amount, and there's a similar number of them. The students they're drawing are from the same district. Uh, They have similar qualities. And so we have this really natural sort of experiment in Ohio where we can compare schools that are right next to each other and have these different features. On top of that, because we have so many, uh, we can identify not just differences between the for-profit and nonprofit variety, but within the for-profit variety, we can tell if a charter school is very reliant on the management company, the for-profit management company, in the sense that the for-profit management company provides all the personnel, provides the teachers, manages those teachers, or if they hire their own teachers and retain more control over their schools. Maybe Long, you can tell us. So what, what were some of the results on that fact? What are the spending patterns that we're seeing between these different types of for-profit charter schools then? We found some really interesting pattern here, uh, especially the difference between these two types of for-profit operated charter schools, you know, those that hire their own staff and those that contract out for staff. But pretty much, I think we found that the for-profit operated charter schools tend to spend more in the classroom and less mm-hmm. on administration than the counterpart, the nonprofit charter schools that contract with nonprofit management organizations. But uh, again, we must pay close attention to some significant differences between the for-profit charters that do and do not purchase personnel mm-hmm. services from their management organizations. Stefan, do you happen to uh, remember how these two types of for-profit operated charter schools mm-hmm. spend their resources? It's getting a little fuzzier, but it seemed that the more reliant on the for-profit management company a charter school is, the more there are characteristics of more corporate sort of governance taking advantage of economies of scale. So you've got more students per teacher. Uh, you've got more schools in the network. You have uh, more instructional hours for students. And so there seems to be a, a fundamentally different approach that corresponds to the higher achievement results. Mm-hmm. This is interesting too, that that some of these for-profit charter operators are able to put more money into the classroom. They keep the administrative costs uh, relatively lean. And as you say, they have scale because they're able to bring more capital to bear in order to scale up. And this is a positive. The negative is that we did see, I think it was higher absenteeism rates, some of those for-profit schools. And again, the nonprofit charter schools in Ohio did outperform the for-profit charter schools on these different achievement measures, though both outperformed districts. And one last thing that I think is important to clarify, and I'm anticipating David will raise this if not, is we're really, we're just looking at the brick and mortar charter schools in Ohio. Ohio's had this large online virtual charter school sector. 
Many of their schools have been terrible over the years and have really dragged down the achievement of the charter school sector. Now we've all been through remote learning with all kinds of schools, and we just see how hard this is uh, to help kids learn in this environment. I don't know, David, you've always been skeptical of for-profit charter schools. Are, are you ready to change your mind on this one? I am not so much skeptical of for-profit charter schools, Mike, as I am still waiting to hear the, the answer to the question, why do we need this? I feel like often skeptics are characterized as foaming at the mouth and thinking that everyone who runs a for-profit charter company you know, is twisting their mustache and trying to defraud kids. And I, I don't think that's true. I, I think there's plenty of good people working in this sector. And I think a lot of them probably care about kids. But I've never really gotten a straight answer to the question of why, if on average, nonprofit networks tend to slightly outperform for-profit networks, it's so important that we have for-profit you know, networks in the mix. Why can't we simply have a big competitive mm-hmm. nonprofit sector and put to bed some of the concerns about for-profit onlines, bad actors, political pushback? Make the case to me that this is worth the mm-hmm. trouble. I'm not convinced that this is what is sort of determining the growth rate of charters around the country, right? In other words, mm-hmm. I, it seems to me that where charters are being held back, it's because of a cap or because of union politics, right? It's not because um, we sort of failed to embrace for-profits. I mean, the argument has always been about capital, financial capital. And so I think that is a barrier. There's been solutions in the nonprofit chain area, especially the Charter Schools Growth Fund or the New Schools Venture Fund, have tried to put a lot of philanthropic dollars into these networks and these schools to scale them up and to overcome some of the challenges, many challenges that happen. But My sense is that's been very successful, especially in places where there's lots of public funding for charter schools, like on the East Coast, but in states like Michigan and Ohio and Florida, maybe where partly because the per-pupil funding is not so high, being able to have these for-profit companies that can raise private capital that are sometimes both running charter schools and doing facilities deals, that again, I understand people on the left just don't like the idea of it, but that is allowing the sector to scale. What we would know is if we got rid of all the for-profit charter schools in Ohio right now, there'd be half as many charter schools in Ohio and probably even less than half of of kids being served. But Mike, if you banned them them 20 years ago, wouldn't there be twice as many nonprofits? That's my question. We don't know. There's, I mean, there's no cap in Ohio. There's no limit on new charter schools. I think that the financial limits are real that it is expensive. You know, we have some fantastic charter schools that we authorize in Ohio. We're a charter school authorizer. One of them is Kip Columbus. They've got an incredible board with a lot of heavy hitters who have put a ton of money into that school over the years. There's not enough philanthropy to make up the difference. That is my sense. I don't know if Stefan or Long, if you have any opinions. (laughs) I imagine they don't want to get in the middle of this. (laughs) Well, I mean, just based on the study, I'm going to try to stay within the bounds of, of the study here. Yeah. There are multiple arguments for having charter schools. One of those arguments is that you might get some sort of educational technology. I mean that broadly, some sort of innovation that could have spillover effects into different sectors, into traditional public schools, into nonprofit charter schools. In our case, Uh, we see that the for-profit charters have a distinct, different way of administering their schools. There's greater scale. There's probably more standardization. And we know they're less reliant on personnel. So where do the classroom costs go? Maybe they have software packages that they're developing and testing in their schools and plan to scale them out. I mean, I, I don't know, but the profit motive can incentivize that type of behavior. 
and we might be missing out on a different model that can spill over and help other schools. Well, we will leave it there. Let Stefan have the last word. I hope people do dig in for themselves because, again, it's a great study, but the achievement effects, which, which get so much attention, but also these spending patterns, which is new and really interesting. It's called for-profit charter schools and evaluation of their spending and outcomes. Stefan and Long, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So it has finally happened. Fall has finally arrived, not just on the calendar, but in the air. It yes. finally feels like fall around here. It has, and the, which means I get to go pumpkin picking for my front porch. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> is, is that the extent of the decor you do in the fall? Yeah, well, a fall wreath. Got to oh, put a fall okay. wreath on the door, put some pumpkins. Yeah, and I get some fall plants like pansies, you know, and mums. Yeah. My mm-hmm. wife and my 12-year-old son are talking about getting a, uh, a Halloween tree. This is now a thing, oh, I guess. really? I mean, why why just do trees for Christmas when you could do it uh, for other holidays? Does it have candy on it or what's a Halloween I tree? Don't, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I No, I think maybe goblins and things. We don't have it yet. I'll, I'll report back. <laughs> Lovely. And how about David is... I mean, James is ready for a big Halloween, I would imagine. Well, we went apple picking this weekend is what I was going to say. He was a very enthusiastic apple picker. Transitioning to pumpkins shortly, I suspect. (laughs) (laughs) I'm up on your shoulders, David. Actually, they were pretty small trees. So there was really dangerously little barrier between him and just (laughs) picking a billion apples. (laughs) But we'll be transitioning to Halloween shortly. You might even get a costume out of me this year, Mike. Stranger things happen. Nice. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, that's exciting. Good. Oh, don't, wait. Don't count your chickens. You said stranger things could happen and don't count your chickens. So I'm expecting either a stranger things costume or right. a chicken. Chicken. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> literal <laughs> folk around here. Uh, we did dress up our dog as a demogorgon a few years ago. All right. Hey, what you got for us this week, Amber? All right. Hey, I got a new study from Doug Harris and colleagues. Uh, It's a descriptive analysis of closure and restructuring rates in all three sectors, district, charter, and private schools. So how are they doing with closures? In New Orleans? No, nationally. Nationally. Okay. So the trends of school closures and restructuring are calculated over the last three decades from 1991 to 2019, using a near census of all K-12 schools. To explore predictors of closure and restructuring, they focus on the years 2014 through 2018. So they winnow it down when they're looking at the predictive factors because they have better data from 14 to 18. Closures, that's an easy definition. Buildings cease to function as schools. Restructuring is a little bit more complicated of a definition, but in a nutshell, it means significant and involuntary changes are made in personnel, management, or governance, meaning a change in decision-making authority, as typically forced by a district or state government. And then they say, you know, outside of that definition, it's kind of broad. They include restarts, the change in management and TPS. Reconstitutions as defined by the feds, which the definition is you're restructured, transformed, or otherwise changed as a consequence of the state's accountability system under ESSA or as a result of a SIG grant. That's what it is to be labeled as reconstituted in the CCD database. Conversion is also included in that reconstructing uh, definition, meaning you convert from TPS to charter or vice versa. 
turnarounds, transformations, where you have this outside consultant come in and make some big change. And state takeovers are also included, although they don't have good data with the takeovers. They can provide private schools in the closure rate, but not the restructuring rate, which obviously makes sense. They're using the private school survey for the closure data. I think they've got about like a 78% response rate. So they had to manually look up the rest of the private schools and find out whether or not they were closed or not. So their main data source is the National Longitudinal School Database, or NLSD. This is Tulane created. Uh, It's a near census of all schools in the country from 1991 to 2019, integrates multiple public and proprietary data sets, including CCD, private school survey, CEDA, great schools ratings. And then again, they had to manually collect these other private schools that weren't in the PSS. They code it as closed. Those schools reported by CCD as closed or inactive for one year and also schools that disappear from one year to the next and remain missing until the end of the data file. Schools are also coded closed if they switched physical locations. For restructuring, they include those TPS or charter schools that report a change in their charter status from TPS to charter or vice versa. And reconstitutions, again, are in CCD. Then to identify a change in management, organization, or governance, they code as restructured. Those charters that have both a change in LEA and in school name and a change in authorizer, which is also in the CCD. CCD's got more variables than I realize relative to charters, by the way. Uh, Finally, they define as restructured those schools reported as closed where another school is reported as new in the same location. All those definitions are in the bag, I hope, in your mind. They're key finding. Annual closure rate from 2014-2018 for charters. What do you think the annual closure rate for charters was from 14 to 18? Mm, annual. Annual. Oh, man. 5%. I was <laughs> going to go with 4%. All right. 5.1. Pretty Boom. good. Well done, Boom, Mike. Mike. All right. What are we going to guess for private schools? Well, interesting. Uh, 2%. David? I'll go with 3%. Ooh, David nailed that one. (laughs) And for district schools. Ooh, for district schools. This is trickier. Now, 2014 and 2018, we're pulling out of the Great Recession. Spending starting to increase again. We still have a lot of kids coming through middle school and high school. I'm going to say 1%. I'll go with 2%. 0.9%, Mike. Yes. Ooh. Yes. I wanted to go with 1%. <laughs> Mike, child, I, I, I sometimes think I should have been a demographer. I, I love it. I just love demographers. Yeah. You read a lot too. The annual restructuring rates are 2.0% for charters. That's that big definition I just told you about. And 0.6% for TPS. Almost all of the TPS restructurings are this reconstitution thing, that federal definition that I told you about. A small remainder are TPS to charter conversions. I mean, that actually happens sometimes. For charter schools, the majority of restructurings are changes in authorizers. That happens about 50% of the time, followed by that reconstitution definition and then charter TPS conversions. They also estimate the probability of closure and restructuring as a function of school characteristics, and they find the strongest predictor of school closings is, what you think? Race. Low enrollment. There you go, Mike. Low student enrollment, especially in private schools. In charter and TPS, achievement measures predict closures nearly as strongly as enrollment. 
Finally, they measure the competition as the number of schools in each sector that are located near each school. And they find that increased local presence of charter schools is associated with higher closure of private schools and higher closure slash restructuring of traditional schools. In contrast, the number of private schools is almost never associated with the closure or restructure of charter schools or TPS. More generally, each sector's closure outcomes seem related to the presence of one or two other sectors, but no sector is responsive to all three. Interesting. I mean, the the private school piece, I'd be curious if you could zone in on a state or two where there's a big voucher program. If there's any supply side Mm -hmm. effects of those voucher programs, we finally start to see new, new private schools spring up to take advantage of these programs, you would think that might start to have more of an impact, right? But that, there hadn't been a whole lot of that yet. That's probably tiny. Maybe I'll ask you uh, or, or our interns to help us go back in time to the early aughts, Amber, because mm-hmm. I understand that this they, they wanted to look at this other uh, more recent period for this particular analysis. But I am curious if you can see if there was a spike in closures back around the time that No Child Left Behind came in. Yeah, and, and they actually did say that. They, did, they eyeballed that, Mike. Yeah, and that is the case? That. That was the case. And also yeah. a spike in charter closures, you know, in the yeah. early aughts, too, as yeah. as they were getting more mature and authorizers were learning what their jobs, you know, were. You know, I have wondered if that helps to explain the big in- improvement in achievement, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, we know we've got some of those studies that can point to accountability itself, the accountability pressures, but they're pretty small impacts. And the improvements were much greater. I've argued that it's, uh, you know, improvements in child poverty rate and things like that coming out of the 90s. But look, this could be another thing. You know, we had a wave of the worst schools, both charter and traditional public schools, going away at a time when there was a lot of churn that might have really helped. And frankly, I think we're going to see another period like that coming up because of the enrollment declines. It's hard to come up with any issue that makes education reformers sound more callous or, <laughs> you know, or removed from the day-to-day reality. You know what I mean? I mean, like, because I'm right with there with you, right? Like, I hear closer rate, I get all excited, right? Yeah, good I'm point. Sure it's not an apology. It's If you take the big view, the long view, it's pretty mm-hmm. clear that a certain amount of closure is desirable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's also mm-hmm. just terrible to see in person. I don't know that there's any way around it. My impression is that closure rate for charters has declined, if for no other reason that the sector has matured. That's happened as well. Because just keep in mind, they did do the longer for the, you know, the 30 years. It was only the predictive piece, Mike, where they did the mm-hmm. more recent years. Right. So, yes, so that- I'll, I'll, everything you guys are saying is broadly shown in the trend data. That does make sense. The other, I would tweak them a little bit on how they define uh, restructuring in the charter sector, you know, mm-hmm. switching authorizers. I call that charter hopping. Worried about that in Ohio, where there is a big opportunity for that over the years that we've tried to shut down through changes in state policy. Basically, you know, an authorizer is about to close the charter, so they go and get a different authorizer. Mm-hmm. That is a real perversion of how the model was supposed to work. You know, to the extent that there was a lot of that happening, that's not so great. That's very different than. Uh, coming in and trying to do a turnaround. or That's right. I'll confess, I'm deeply uninterested in restructuring. As far as I can tell, it doesn't really work. And it's just as difficult as, as closure almost. And, and yeah. politically and at- Well, that's because you're heartless, David. And so, you know, David doesn't <laughs> want to try to fix these failing schools. That's he just wants sort to- of the unavoidable conclusion. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
No, but you and you make a good point, Dave. I mean, this is the least popular part of the reform. Yes. Right. When it's uh, your school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to close down failing schools, which is why it's great if they close sort of naturally. They right. close because of low enrollment. enrollment. Mm-hmm. There you go again, Patrilli. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. We, I know. Look. It's fine. just natural selection. <laughs> It's always us. Look, we're battling between our, our inner angels and devils here. <laughs> and the devils always win. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Amber. Very good stuff. Interesting. Yes. Hey, sounds like an amazing data source, too, that we should use ourselves. Yeah, uh, we'll see. I love this. My ears perked on that one, too, Mike. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week. I'm David Griffin. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.